Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello out there, See Here listeners. Morris speaking here. Later on this week, I'll be releasing See Here episode 36, where myself, Tim, Bernie, and our special guest, Sam Wiles, will be discussing the Beatles animated feature from 1968 based around their song, Yellow Submarine. What I've released here, though, is a bonus episode. I did an interview with Mitch Axelrod. He's one of the three co-hosts of the fantastic Fab Four Free For All podcast, but he's also the author of a book called Beetle Tunes. And to the best of my knowledge, this is the only book ever written about the Beatles cartoon series that was very, very big between 1965 and 1969. No one knows more about these cartoons and the story about their creation than Mitch Axelrod. And I thought I'd get in contact with him so we could have a bit of a discussion as a nice compliment to the main program's discussion about Yellow Submarine. I was originally going to include this conversation with Mitch to be part of the same episode as the conversation that I had with the others about Yellow Submarine, but both are quite enjoyable in their own right, so I figured that I'd make this as a bonus episode. It goes for a little under an hour. I hope that you enjoy it, and then later on in the week, I hope that you choose to also download See Here 36, once again, about Yellow Submarine. So sit back, relax, and let Mitch Axelrod entertain you with his tales about the Beatles cartoon series put out by King Features in the 1960s. Cheers. of See Here podcast and as you all know out there listening to this episode the focus of the show has been about the 1968 film Yellow Submarine but I don't really think that we could talk about Yellow Submarine without referring to the Beatles in animation from some years before that. The Beatles had a very successful animated TV series that ran, well, I guess technically from 1965 to 69. I am on the phone with the man who is the expert about the Beatles cartoon series. His name is Mitch Axelrod. If you've been listening to the Fab Four Free For All podcast, and if you haven't, why not? But I have Mitch Axelrod on the phone from New York. It's Sunday morning here. It's Saturday evening over there. So thanks very much for joining us, Mitch. Oh, pleasure, Morris. Really happy to be here. Now, before we go any further in discussing the cartoon itself, about a week ago from when we're recording, you, I think, were the first one to reveal the uh, passing of a man who was very important to both the cartoon series and to the movie Yellow Submarine, Al Brodex. So could you give us a little bit of a background as to what led Al to creating or helping to create the TV series? And what was his background in animation before actually doing the Beatles cartoons? Oh, uh, sure. Um, and Al Brodex, I mean, may rest in peace, was very, very important, you know, not only to the Beatles, but in animation. Prior to the Beatles or the idea of animating the Beatles, Al worked for King Features as the 
head of the animation department, and uh, he had revitalized the the old uh, Fleischer Popeye series, and uh, he did about 260 of them uh, in 1961, two, and three. He also did well. They call it the King Features trilogy, which is Popeye, uh, Crazy Cat, Snuffy Smith, and Beetle Bailey. Uh, and Popeye's not part of that, so it's that trilogy. So if you and if you remember, Beetle Bailey actually was done uh, animated in, and so was Crazy Cat animated in Australia uh, at our Transa Park Studios in French's Forest. And uh, so he was important uh, way before the Beatles. And as far as the Beatles, he claims that he saw, and I say he claims because my book has a little bit of a different story. Uh, but I think maybe as he got a little older, uh, the memory sort of fades and. Mm. Uh, I think the story he now, well, not not now tells, uh, unfortunately, but he did tell, was a little bit of a sexier story, so to speak, than the one he told me. <laughs> um, and, and, and believe me, I have all, nothing but respect for Al, so uh, everybody's memory goes a little bit. You know, my, I don't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, <laughs> um, and I'm only 54, so... But, you know, Al says that he saw the Beatles uh, being in New York, because Al was born in, in New York, um, and King Features was in New York, Al saw the Beatles on uh, the Ed Sullivan show like everybody else did, and the 73 million people did. And uh, he had, they call it chutzpah. He, he uh, had the chutzpah to try to call up the uh, hotel room where the Beatles were staying in, here in New York. And he actually got in touch. He had his assistant, Mary Ellen Stewart, who passed away, I believe, from brain hemorrhage a, while, a long time ago. But his assistant, Mary Ellen, called up the hotel room and got Brian Epstein's assistant, and her name was Wendy Hansen. And the two of them got on so well that uh, Wendy said, okay, just hold on for Brian, and then put, and then uh, Mary Ellen put Al on the phone. And Al's opening line supposedly was, hey, Brian, I can help the Beatles. <laughs> and Brian was intrigued. Yeah, I mean, talk about, you know, uh, again, chutzpah, you know, uh, actually in New York, we call it, you know, he had, a, he had big balls. Sorry, but, um, but, but he, you know, the, the Beatles had just played to 73 million people and were about as high as you can get. And I mean that figuratively, not literally, even though they met Bob Dylan later on in, in 1964 in the Delmonico Hotel and were turned on to, you know, marijuana. But, but they were as high as you can be. And, you know, here's this guy calling saying, I can help the Beatles. I mean, how much, you know, could you really help the Beatles? But they both talked for a while, and Epstein was intrigued. And Al said, listen, you know, I'm in animation, and I, and I think we can do something with the Beatles in animation. You know, they had a handshake agreement, and they decided to move forward with uh, the Beatles cartoon series. I seem to have recollections. Well, not I seem to. I do have recollections of, uh, as a kid, not just the Beatles cartoons, but I do remember watching Cool McCool and pounced on the box set when that came out. But it was only as an adult that I was able to say, oh, Al Brodax, that's the guy who did the Beatles cartoon. Oh! Double O. C double O. C double O L. C double O L Mac. Cool Mac Cool. And, you know, I, I, I was remiss in not mentioning Cool McCool because that was done, co-created with Batman creator uh, Bob Kane. Right, right. Uh, and that also, Cool McCool was also animated mostly in uh, Art Transit Park in Australia. I did uh, not so know they, that. Uh, yeah. yeah, oh yeah. Uh, I have articles from Australia where they were animating uh, Beetle Bailey and Cool McCool. Cool McCool, I think, was a little bit after the Beatles or during the Beatles in the later years of the Beatles series. But still, nonetheless, intriguing uh, that he also did it with, you know, Bob Kane. Most people don't know that. So, yeah, Al Brodak did a bunch of stuff. And, you know, you didn't notice it until, well, until the Beatles came along. Because then Al, who used to have a little credit, like on a Popeye, would say, you know, produced by Al Brodak at the bottom of the title. But when the Beatles came, by the time the third season of the Beatles came, Al Brodak's uh, hand-flicking a cigar was a huge one was the full screen of the yes. credit so you couldn't you know miss it after uh, after it became famous or popular very similar to uh, the number one character of uh, cool mccool yes absolutely yeah you're right I, I i can't imagine that the beatles would ever be saying to him that'll never happen again number one <laughs> well you know what the voices which the beatles really disliked sort of like that, so <laughs> they could have actually said that because it was an Americanized version of Liverpoolian, which was a conscious decision by Al and his team 
And, you know, the Beatles really didn't like the cartoons because of those voice portrayals. There was something actually I I did want to get into, uh, Mitch, because I did read in your book, you said that they were Americanized voices. Can you please explain what does it mean, Americanized voices? I mean, they're not American accents, but what what did that actually mean? Well, the fear was when when it came to be that the Beatles were not going to do their own voices because they just didn't have the time. Can you imagine, you know, this started in the idea, the concept started really after they got to go ahead and all the sponsors and everything. It started in July of 64, June of 64. They started getting everything together and the Beatles were as hot as can be. So they were not going to do their own voices. So they, when they picked the voices to do the Beatles or were going to pick the voices, they decided that there's, they did not think that the kids in America, because the, the cartoons were basically made for America, even though they were shown all over the world except for England, funny enough, which I'm sure we'll get into, but they decided that the kids in America really wouldn't understand a Liverpoolian accent. Mm. Because some, some of the, you know, if you're from Manchester or from Liverpool, some of it could get very heavy. And, and as a matter of fact, in the new Eight Days a Week, documentary on the extras they interview Beatles manager Alan Williams for one of you know from the early days and mm. they subtitle him <laughs> so oh, uh, I wow. can understand oh yeah so I can I can understand where they were coming from they wanted the series to be a hit they didn't want people in America to say I don't understand what's going on here I don't I don't understand it so they tried to get someone who would put the accent on but just didn't have as heavy an accent uh, so that's why I say it's an Americanized version. And, and oddly enough, the two people who did the voices, one was a British man named Lance Percival, who was very popular in, in England and went on to the Yellow Submarine as Old Fred. And then uh, Paul Fries, who was one of the most in-demand voice actors of the day, he played John and George. Now, if you've heard the Beatle cartoons, I say in my book, and I, I, I stick by it, that John sounds very Rex Harron, Harrison-ish, mm, mm. and uh, George sounds like Peter Laurie. Come on, Paul, we'll eat while we rehearse. Eat while we sing. <laughs> so it's a little weird. I mean, yes, Ringo and Paul sound better because they were actually voiced by a Brit. Hi, Paul. Things have wild pile of girders. Ringo, you clod, that's the Eiffel Tower. But, you know, they also made Ringo Lance, when I interviewed him, said that he made him kind of Birmingham so it sounded a little slower because he wanted to make Ringo sound like the, you know, not the dum-dum, but just the fall guy and, and maybe the dum-dum was a good choice of words. So that's why you know, the Americanized versions weren't too looked upon nicely by the Beatles. They just couldn't. You know, they couldn't see it that way. So that's why they uh, had to change the voices when it came to Yellow Submarine. So do you think that the Beatles objected more to the way they were characterized or they just thought that the cartoons were just beyond ridiculous? Well, both, because the, the cartoons were very limited animation. So a lot of stock scene cells. So if you watch all 78 episodes uh, of the cartoons and even the 75 or so sing-alongs, you do see a lot of the same cells. Now, that happened a lot right. with cartoons back then. Uh, I mean, Rough and Ready and, and uh, Crusader Rabbit was some of the first cartoons, and they were very, very, very limited animation. So uh, the Beatles were, were not bad at all for the time. But again, it, it was kind of not, I, I say it was technologically challenged or technically challenged, and it was. It was simple animation. It wasn't anything major. It was just, you know, they wanted to capitalize on the, on the popularity of the Beatles and their music. And really, the music was really what it was all about, which, or, or what they hoped it would be all about. And, you know, thank goodness they were right, because obviously the Beatles cartoon was very successful, even though it wasn't looked upon nicely by the Beatles. You've got situations in the, in the cartoons that seem like very unbeatle. You know, they, they were caught in haunted houses or visiting jungles yeah. in Africa or acting as surrogate kisses on a movie set. Although, well, actually, maybe there's some truth to the last one. Uh, <laughs> As long as it's not kisses on the bottom. (laughs) Yeah, only I hope people realize that, you know, the kisses on the bottom was McCartney album, so great. Sorry. (laughs) Sometimes forget that, you know, I'm I'm a Beatle geek. That's fine. That's uh, that's why I sought you out. I needed a Beatles geek for this this discussion. No, the the situations that they were in, yes, were very un-Beatle-like, but also very Beatle-like as well, because... 
but you, you always had the fans running after them. So in that regard, it was very Beatle-like. But there was no way you could have the Beatles traveling to a haunted house, like you said, to Japan, to anywhere, and just be amongst people, like in a, uh, a, a museum, as in any time at all, they're in a museum. Right. Uh, then they're in a fashion show for, you know, the song, the episode for help. Yep. Th- there's no way you can do that. So in some ways, it suspended belief, and in some ways, it was true to life of what the Beatles had been going through. So do you think that they uh, looked to uh, a film like Help, which in some respects actually did have them doing ordinary things, you know, riding bicycles or or uh, oh the oh, the famous four, yeah. Well, I think they used uh, well. Don't forget when they first started out, the only thing they had really was stage performances and a hard day's night. Yeah. So they had to really do the model sheets based on the stereotypes of the day from a hard day's night and any live performances. So it really was. A Hard Day's Night. Now, later on, when the Beatle cartoons were in production, obviously help came out. And I didn't put it in my book, but when I do a presentation, I do usually show exact scenes from A Hard Day's Night and Help that they used in the cartoons. I mean, frame for frame. Wow. There's uh, the scene from uh, A Hard Day's Night when they're in the Scala Theater at the very end. And John is, you see John's back and he's bouncing I believe it was to uh, tell me why or whatever, or I I should have known better. Whichever one they're singing, I forget at the time. But in the Please Mr. Postman episode of of the cartoons, there's the exact bouncing scene from the stage from behind. So, I mean, literally you could overlay it. It was pretty wild. There's also, from Help, the scene where they're trying to get the ring and they go after Ringo at night and they pull away the covers and Ringo's feet are at the head of the bed instead of his head. And they did that uh, also for, uh, I think, in Don't Bother Me, the episode. They do the same exact thing, and they pull the covers away, and there's Ringo's feet with rings on his toes. <laughs> so there are many, many, many scenes where they took it straight from the, the two movies. One thing that I will say, just sort of re-watching some of the cartoons in uh, recent weeks in preparation for this, it seemed that they must have paid close attention to how each Beatles' uh, physical mannerisms were on stage. So, you know, John had that way of keeping his knees apart and bouncing up and, and down. And up and down, yeah. And, and George, how he held his guitar and Ringo, the way how he'd bounce his head, especially when there's a profile shot in the cartoon on the drum kit, mm-hmm. the way how Paul held the bass. It, it was, they must have gone to a lot of trouble to make that look quite authentic. They did. As a matter of fact, there's one, uh, when you, there's one scene cell, and when I say scene cell, that means, you know, they used it a lot, and of John's profile, which is, I mean, so strikingly realistic compared to the rest of the way the cartoons were made. So, yeah, they did that a lot. They, they did pay attention. Certainly there are scenes where uh, in, in a couple of the cartoons for rock and roll music and I'm down, they mimic George's little sidestep that he does in A Hard Day's Night during right. I Should Have Known Better, where he dances and the crowd you know, goes crazy. Well, he does that in a few of the episodes of the cartoon, so they definitely were paying attention. Well, I want to ask just something a little bit about yourself. So you said that you're 54, so we're actually not too far in age. What was your first recollection of actually watching the cartoons? Wow. Uh, You know, when I was two, the Beatles hit America, and... You know, my mother was a fan of the of Paul, <laughs> uh, like every woman was at that time, and probably still is. Right. But you know, she sat me down in front of the TV and and made me watch the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. So the, when the cartoons came around in '65, late '65, I was already three and a half, and I know that sounds like oh well, he didn't see any of that. And you know what? I remember seeing the cartoons first run. I definitely do. But more from the syndication in like 1970 and 71. Mm -hmm. But I definitely remember them in first run. Uh, I remember in 1966, I was four and I was visiting someone in the hospital. And in the hospital gift shop, they had the color forms, Beatles color forms, cartoon color forms which uh, is a very rare piece now, and I remember getting it uh, and losing it. But mm. So I, I do have recollections of them first run, but more when you know they came in syndication. So at what point did you become obsessed with their music? Was, was the cartoons your gateway to the music, even like from that, despite the fact that you had the syndication later on, but from four years old, did you just sort of think, I want to hear more of this? Well, here's the thing. You know, my father's friend, Bernie, there, there used to be a, a store in, in New York called Times Square Stores, TSS. 
and it was basically a department store, so it had everything in it. In, in TSS, there was a record store, and my father's friend Bernie had owned the record store at TSS. So once I heard the Beatles or was, you know, hearing the Beatles in my house, I immediately was drawn to it. And I used to get the records a week or so in advance of them being released because Bernie got them in his store, was was not allowed to sell them until the release date. But I would get them. My father would bring them home and I would play them. I played Meet the Beatles from 1964 to 1969 so many times. I must have had 13 copies of that. Huh. Uh, so I immediately was drawn to their music at a very, very early age yeah. and continued on, obviously, till today. But, you know, there were circumstances in my life where my parents were getting divorced when I was eight. Uh, I had to move because a couple of relatives passed away in a plane crash. So I had to move to their house so we could take care of my cousins, uh, who are now my brothers and sisters. My mom had to do that. So there was a whole lot of turmoil going on in my life personally. And then when the Beatle cartoons came on in syndication, you know, I've said this before in another show, but they, they really were uh, my guardian angels, so to speak. You know, it was a, a sense of relief to me, bringing me back to to something that, uh, that uh, I loved because of all the, you know, the turmoil was, was taking hold of my life. Wow. So the Beatles were uh, a very big part of my life, not only cartoon-wise, but just in general. The music, I became a drummer because of Ringo. So you nice. know, there was a lot of good that the Beatles did for me. Wow. Coming to your book, at what stage did you decide, right, well, this is an uncharted territory in the, the world of Beatles books, of which there are thousands out there. Was it the fact yeah. that it had not been written about before that, made, that drew you towards doing this, or because of the affection that you had towards the cartoons, because they were your guardian angels, the cartoons was, was comfort food for you in your early years? A, a little bit of both, actually, because, you know, in, in 1986, King Features had licensed out the rights to MTV. Mm. Uh, and um, I'm not sure about the world, but I, I'm, I know here, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure if they played in Australia, but I know in New York, they were on every Saturday and Sunday morning, and they were the highest rated show on MTV. And I started watching again, and it just brought me right back to, you know, my childhood and all those good feelings. And then the Disney Channel had them on for a, a very short period of time in 1990. And, you know, I just, it rekindled something in me. I've always been a writer. I, I write songs. I write poems. I have tapes and tapes and CDs worth of songs that I've done, demos, and very beatily, by the way. You know, I, I just thought I want to do something more. I want to write something about the Beatles. What can I possibly write about? Because as you said, there's thousands of books on the Beatles. So I said, you know what? Let me tackle the cartoons. Let me see what I can, I can do. And, and I have to give credit to a uh, um, Beatle fan magazine uh, done by Bill King in Atlanta, Georgia. And he's been doing it for, you know, 35 years or so or more. It's amazing that there's actually still a print magazine mm. in this day and age. But he had an article in his very early on uh, about the Beatle cartoons done by a, a fellow called Christopher Cook. And I got to give credit to Christopher because he had done a little bit of research to try to find out about them, you know, a couple of pages worth or three, four pages worth for an article. And I took it from there. Uh, I, I would say I took the torch from Chris and uh, really ran with it. What a weird trip the research was because I had every cartoon either on film or on VHS from the MTV showings. Right. So I looked at the credits. Most people watch the cartoons. I was watching the credits and copying down their names of all the animators, the sound people, everything. And I tried to find out as much as I could on each person. Well, oddly enough, the first person I contacted worked in Australia, Chris Cuddington. Uh, now, he worked in, in Arkansas Park. Later, he worked for Phil Cartoons in uh, the Philippines, doing Captain Planet and the Planeteers, a very eco-friendly cartoon <laughs> by Ted Turner in the 80s. But he turned me, I wrote to him uh, in Phil Cartoons, he wrote to me and said, you know, you might want to tap into another resource of Ron Campbell. Ron Campbell also worked in Australia, so this is becoming very Australia-centric. Yeah, but us. He worked in yeah, yeah. He, uh, he worked in Australia, but when I tried to contact him, they said, oh, he's now living in Arizona. And this was before the time of the Internet. This was 1993 or four. so I went to the library, and they had something called Phone Disc 
where you can pull up an Australian phone book from a disc that mm. they updated every year. And all they had was R. Campbell in Arizona, and there must have been 120 of them. And I went through calling each one, oh, started wow. at the top, and I said, are you Ron Campbell, the animator? No, click. Are you Ron Campbell? <laughs> and uh, my, my phone bill, my phone company loved me because the bill was so high, especially when I was calling Australia in the beginning. But I just went through it that way, you know, started researching more and more. And uh, then every it was it really snowballed. Every, everybody had another name for me. And I just kept getting I, I must have interviewed 85 percent of the original series participants. And there was enough for a book. And uh, I decided, OK, I put all the research on my kitchen table in my apartment at the time and sorted through everything I had and found that I really did have uh, enough for a book and figured Beatle fans would enjoy it because they've never been released on DVD or even VHS. So it might be something that people would like to know because they've never heard anything about it really before. I remember watching an interview that you did on the Fox Network and the Anchorman went and asked you, uh, or went and, he basically went and said, You've written this book about the Beatles cartoons. I have no recollection of these cartoons ever even existing. And you've gone and said, like, you know, not just back in the day and in the syndication that the show was really huge, but even in, you know, the mid 80s when MTV showed it, it was hugely popular. So have, have you found that a lot of people have come to you or, or, you know, contacted you through the podcast and have said, wow, I've read your book. I didn't know this existed. And if so, why do you think that it is such a show that was so popular back in the day just could be so forgotten about. Well, I, I think I've already mentioned that, that I, I really, yeah, first of all, to answer your question, yes, there, were, there are some people who have come to me. Again, the young, I think some of the younger fans and said, I, I've never known about a Beatle cartoon. I knew, you know, about a Osmond's cartoon. I knew about a Jackson 5 cartoon. Mm, mm. I've never known about a Beatle cartoon. And really, that's partly because they've never been released. Uh, you know, the handshake agreement with Brian Epstein, Epstein, whichever one you want to say, with Al Brodax to never release them in the UK because of the dislike for the characterization and for the voices, that, well, they weren't shown in the UK. And the Beatles bought back the rights from King Features in 1995. Uh, when they bought the Yellow Submarine back as well. And oddly enough, the cartoons were supposedly a throw-in to the deal. So <laughs> you see how little the Beatles thought of the cartoons. And, you know, I think maybe if King Features would have held on to them, which I don't know if they could have because of the likenesses of the Beatles, maybe they would have been released because King Features eventually released everything. But uh, I think because they just were not liked and then were not released, and I say liked by the Beatles. Yep. And, yeah, they were silly, but they, were, you know what? They did introduce a lot of people to Beatle music. You know, little kids were sitting down watching a cartoon, which everybody loved cartoons, mm. and also listening to Beatle music, which is probably arguably the best in the world. So I think that's the main reason some people had never heard of them or forgotten about them, because there wasn't this big grandiose DVD box set. You know, you could find them on bootlegs, on tapes and everything, especially after the MTV uh, aired them, MTV aired them. But I just think that uh, the non-release of the cartoons really made them become sort of obsolete. I mean, it's still even amazing to me to think, though, that like nowadays, in the days of the internet, in the days of YouTube and all that, that we do have so much of this stuff at our fingertips, and it's you know not just accessible to Beatles fanatics like you know yourself and myself, where you know the click of a button, you know anyone can sort of find out about this sort of thing. So it's, it just seems amazing to me that in the 21st century, this thing that's you know, really not that far back from where we are today has largely been forgotten about. Well, yeah, and I, and I do think, you know, yes, we do have some on YouTube. We do, but there, you know, the quality is, is pretty horrible on any bootlegs. Some are really good, but, you know, some are not great. And, you know, there's reason enough. I, I know in this politically correct world, uh, may the Lord help us, you know, we can't even watch a cartoon. You know, Tom and Jerry are considered you know, cruel to each other because they, they hit each other. You know, come on. But I think in this day and age, you know, we've become so sensitive to offending anybody that, you you know, you can't have even the Beatle cartoons because, you know, they went to Japan and they called him Dr. Asso. It's a cartoon. And, I mean, it, you know, if you watch The Simpsons, Itchy and Scratchy actually decapitate each other whenever they're on screen with blood and cuts, and they always come back to each other. So they can show that, but they can't have the Beatles being maybe a little bit politically un incorrect. 
You know, I do think, though, that there is enough really good PC episodes of the Beatle cartoons where you could easily do a DVD's worth of, like, the Beatle cartoons' greatest hits, so to speak. Sure. And just have it, you know, there are many, many episodes where it's just totally generic. You know, like you said, like The Haunted House, and unless someone's offended by Frankenstein. Um, <laughs> believe me, I'm someone probably would be. But, you know, it's just really fun stuff that would reintroduce people to uh, the Beatles music. So have you um, heard anything that says where, you know, Paul, Ringo, Olivia, and, and Yoko have actively gone and said, don't even ask. Ah, uh, that's a tricky one to answer. We've proposed many times to have them released or asked to have them released, were shot down, and then um, then we even, you know, I say we, uh, the original creator, Peter Sander, the original designer of the cartoons uh, over in London. Peter Sander and I are very good friends, and uh, he actually lives in Toronto. We've even proposed a new Beatle cartoon series using real British voice actors and uh, and still been shot down. Now, now, I don't know if it was timing because they thought they were going to redo the Yellow Submarine in 3D or they just don't want to do it. I really can't say, but I, I believe me, we've tried. And uh, I just, I, unfortunately, I just don't think it's going to happen unless someone just has an epiphany, uh, maybe that they can, you know, make money. Uh, you know what? If the Beatles are losing revenue stream for some reason, maybe we'll see the cartoons. <laughs> because the cartoons can easily, I, I really think they would sell well. And either they've licensed the cartoon images uh, since 2004, and I think, but only on kids' products and stuff. So I think there would be another licensing revenue stream if they did release them again. So who knows? Uh, you know, it depends which way the wind blows and which which side of the bed Paul and uh, Ringo and Olivia and Yoko wake up on. Right. Not all together, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I hope bed, not. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to ask you a, a couple of you know, technical things about the uh, show, well, behind-the-scenes sort of stuff. Now, in your book, you mentioned that the incidental music was written by someone called Bernie Grieve. be correct that because uh, uh. al told me that I'm, i mean it is bernie i'm trying to find out what the real last name is but he did do a lot of the inc incidental music when you hear you know you see them running and you see the opening yeah so uh, yeah, i'm uh, trying i'm trying to figure out who you know i mean it, it definitely was a guy called bernie g something but i think the, the memory might not have been there with al on that one uh and i just didn't have the opportunity to hunt it down at the time but with the internet being what it is, I, I think there's, you know, I can track down exactly who it was. But I, I think for now, Bernie Grieve is fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to do, you know, a bit of a, you know, Google search and couldn't come up with anything. You went, you went and mentioned he was also the composer for uh, the music for your show of shows. I consulted yeah. with a friend of mine who that sort of era of American television would be. He knows everything. It would have been second nature to him, and he said, "No, the name doesn't ring a bell." Al helped with your show of shows. Uh -huh. So it only fit that he would pull someone to work, you know, who worked, he was familiar with. He did that a lot. So I am going to track it down, and I promise I will email you with the info as soon as I find out. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Because the music actually does suit the cartoons if you're not going to be using Beatles music totally the whole way through. And, and certainly they did use the, uh, Beatles music for the opening credits yeah. as, as well as the cartoons and, themselves. And the closing credits as well, yeah. Well, didn't they use sort of like a part of uh, Bernie? G's music on the, on the closing credits. <laughs> boom, 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 well, boom, it, it depends on what we're talking about because the first season, the opening used Can't Buy Me Can't Love. Can't Buy Me Love. Right. Yes. And then the second season, which only had 13 episodes, but only four or five of them used the opening for help. So the help opening is the rarest season opening of all three. And then the third season opening was Anya Bird Can Sing. Now, the endings were all the same. So they used A Hard Day's Night. And then when they cut to the credits, 
because that was over the ending, minute and a half ending. When that ended, they showed a little bit of credits, and that was when they used the incidental music from Bernie G. And, and oddly enough, if you listen to the full 30 days of 1969 with the Get Back sessions, there's a point in them when Paul actually starts playing the ending. The <laughs> boom, 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 And he plays it, and the rest of them try to join in, but it's, it's only about, you know, 10 seconds or so, but I, I thought it was very, very cool that he actually referenced the Beatle cartoons in 1969. Nice. I've got to see if I can Although, mind you, I think, didn't you say, um, and once again, it, it might just have been old Brodak's sort of colouring over it a bit, but, you know, didn't I, I think you're, you quoted him in the book as saying, oh, yeah, yeah, the, the, especially Paul, he really, really liked the cartoon. And he was asking me all sorts of questions about it. Well, yeah, but because Paul, John was very, well, they were all involved more, well, I shouldn't say involved heavily, but they were much more involved with the Yellow Submarine, with Albright X, than they were with the cartoons. Really, there were only a couple of instances where they had the opportunity to hang out with Al Brodax, but as far as, you know, Ringo enjoyed, you know, photography in general, as, you know, he has his book photograph out, and mm. and you've seen the scene even in Hard Day's Night where he does the, you know, after he uh, leave, uh, gets caught. Um, with, with the, with the, with and the he's going to jail. Boy. He's, he's yeah. taking movies, taking a little, yeah, right. In that scene, he's taking photos. So Ringo actually was interested in animation as well. So he was the most involved when, when they could be involved. But Paul was asking questions a lot during the screening on July 29th, where the same day they saw help for the first time. They had a, a whole big sort of screening party. Paul was asking a lot of questions in there. So, you know, they, even though, look, they loved seeing themselves in animated form. They really did. They just didn't like the voices. But, you know, it was very flattering to be really a pioneer in, in animation history because I've said, and it's true, that the Beatle cartoons were the first weekly series to feature animated versions of real people because back in you know in the in the 40s and 50s with Bugs Bunny you always saw Humphrey Bogart make an appearance you you know the Marx Brothers all those people Hollywood made an appearance in, in a lot of Bugs Bunny and other cartoons right but there was never a weekly series that starred cartoon versions of real people until the Beatles so you know as much as they were pioneers in the music industry they were also without really having a big hand in it uh, Al Brodax was really and his team were really pioneers in the animation history, uh, industry so effectively I think the show was produced in four studios Art Transa in Australia being one and TVC yep. which licensed it out in England which licensed it out to a studio in Holland and I think one in, in Canada as well you were saying you've said originally in the book so it went from 65 to 69 but the last couple of years were more uh, mixing up of repeat so really it was just between 65 and 67 and it covered songs all the way up to Penny Lane and Strawberry Over, Fields. Yes. Did the show actually stop running or stop being created due to waning popularity or because at a certain stage the music became too difficult to animate? I mean, can you imagine happiness as a warm gun? As a Well, I always say that I can't imagine an episode for Why Don't We Do It in the Road. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it was very, you know, ballsy of them to, to animate a sing-along for She Said, She Said with 10-year-old kids going, Mommy, I know what it's like to be dead. You know? You know, so that, to me, was a little freaky. But, you know, there it was. So I don't think, I, I think it was more a case of waning interest in cartoons. Uh, not really cartoons, but don't forget when the Beatles cartoons, they were, and when they first premiered, it had a 52 share, which is unheard of, even for any show, daytime, nighttime, didn't matter. So they were very, very popular. But, you know, there were 13 shows in a season, so they were shown four times a year. So the first time you saw them, you know, you were thrilled. Second time, equally as thrilled. Third time, well, you watched it, but, you know, you knew it already. And by the fourth time, you were changing the channel because you've already seen it. Yeah. So when it came to, you know, the 66 season, now don't forget what was going on. John Lennon had done his, you know, his quote about, uh, you know, Jesus Christ. And, yep. uh, it, and, and it didn't play well in the Bible Belt in the South here in the States. So the Beatles themselves, you know, the popularity was waning a little bit, but also the kids got into Batman, the live-action Batman that was shown on ABC TV here, and more superhero cartoons came on after that, because everybody who was trying to beat the Beatles, so to speak, 
as soon as they saw the popularity of Batman in live action, well, everybody, every channel, every station, broadcast company made cartoons on superheroes, you know, Superman, the Super Friends, and this. So uh, it was, and Space Ghost. So that's also what sort of put the Beatles into a little bit of, you know, waning popularity there. And, and also, don't forget, the Beatles were changing, and so were their fans. So a lot of people who grew up with the Beatles, yes, they, they could listen to all of the songs, and enjoy them and see, you know, even the 1964 version of the Beatles singing Strawberry Fields in Penny Lane, when clearly the opening of the series had their in their mustache publicity photos. So it was a little bit of weirdness there. So you could watch the 64 Mop Top singing Strawberry Fields. But really at that time, they were going to India. They were growing up a little bit. Their music was a little more sophisticated, but I could easily have seen it gone on through 70 because you could have easily done a cartoon for Yellow Submarine I mean, if mm. there wasn't a movie. You could do it easily a cartoon for Martha, my dear. It's about a, a dog. You yep. could do a cartoon about Here Comes the Sun and Michelle and, you know, Birthday. I mean, so there was plenty of opportunity with Beatles songs in the later years that they could have done the cartoons, but the Beatles just weren't interested after that. And, and then, you know, to fulfill their three film contract with UA, United Artists, Al Brodex, you know, had uh, proposed an animated feature. Now, originally that animated feature was supposed to use the designs of the cartoons, but the Beatles said, no, no way we're doing that. Mm. We, you know, they, they wanted the, the, the designs to reflect where they were at that time. So uh, they had Heinz Edelman do uh, designs for uh, the Yellow Submarine movie. And they also had different voices, English people, uh, British people actually doing the voices to make it sound more like the Beatles. Uh, that's why the cartoons really only played till 67. Uh, I, I think they would have been really fun if they would have continued. But once the movie of Yellow Submarine became the priority, well, the cartoons weren't because that, uh, TVC was the main studio in uh, London to do the cartoons. They did 26 episodes uh, or more, actually, 26 full shows. So they did like 52 episodes of the 78 cartoons. And that was the studio that went forward to do Yellow Submarine. So once that happened, the cartoons were an afterthought because, you know, they weren't liked in any way. And they were waning in popularity because of all of what John had said and other factors. So that's why they went really off the air. But, you know, who knew that uh, from the Beatle cartoons, without the Beatle cartoons, we wouldn't have had, you know, the subject you're discussing, which is Yellow Submarine. And it's interesting to see, obviously, because, you know, uh, the Beatles themselves had said, no, 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 we don't want those Saturday morning cartoons being our representatives for the obvious reasons. But it also gave Al Brodax and his crew, I guess, a chance to redefine the Beatles for 1968, not just visually, but, you know, Ringo was, you know, less of a dumb dumb and he was uh, sort of seen more as, I don't know, the, the star. He was of, sort of like a loner. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. But you know what? He, he, I think Ringo, it's really funny because if you look at A Hard Day's Night, Ringo is really the focus. Yep. And then Paul, you know, with his grandfather, but, you know, Ringo becomes the focus. The, the cartoon, really, Ringo is basically the fall guy and the focus of the cartoons. And then in Yellow Submarine, you know, he's the first one to see the unidentified flying cupcake. So, <laughs> you know, he's he's also, you know, the first Beatle you see in the movie. So it sort of you know, revolved around him as well. So, you know, they may have made him the dummy and the loner, but uh, he was always the focus. And uh, because, you know, in the States, when they first came here, the two Beatles that were the most popular in the States were Ringo and Paul. Right. So, you know, I mean, there was a Ringo for president, which I'm sure if he ran this election, he would have won. But, um, you know, he, uh, much to his chagrin, I don't think he won't want to, but I think he was the focus. And yes, Al was able to update the Beatles, uh, as you said, more than just visually, just in, in general. I mean, Heinz Edelman really should get a lot of credit, too, because uh, they were working in, in now, you know, circles. Uh, and, and I know that's going to sound weird, but in animation, you work in squares and rectangles when you animate. But normally, when you do a cartoon, and you're, they decided to work in, in circles. So a lot of the movie is very, very different animation than you had seen in the past. And uh, so you got to give the credit to Al, the animation team, Heinz Edelman, and even the Beatles for at least, you know, they did do the music, even though it was, you know, some throwaway stuff that they had, but they went back and 
finish that for the movie, and, and then they made the appearance at the end. Wow. Oh, look, I have to say that ever since I was a kid, Hey Bulldog has always been like in the upper pantheon for me of favorite Beatles songs. A great song with a great driving, you know, instrumental track. But, but oddly enough, when it was shown in the state, Yellow Submarine had the Hey Bulldog segment cut out. Right, right. Now, now it was due to many things, and it depends on who you ask. It was either due to the timing and then it, it didn't let the music, uh, the movie flow as well. Mm. But, you know, I've heard from Al Brodax, from others, that everybody thought it looked too Beatle cartoony. Because if you look at that segment, which was added back for the re-releases, but if you look at that segment, you know, the, all four Beatles are running and synchronized running, and it, it, that's not the way it was in Yellow Submarine. It, uh, Yellow Submarine was a little more sophisticated and trippy, so to speak, psychedelia. And that one segment sort of does remind people of the Beatle cartoons. Right, so I'm not right. sure if that was the reason it was cut or maybe just didn't flow as well. But it's too bad because originally here in the States, we didn't even know that Hey Bulldog was, you know, was on the soundtrack, but it was certainly not in the movie. So it was a little weird until they, they added it back. Sure. I, I remember, when would it have been? Maybe the late 90s or whenever it was when the film got a cinematic re-release. And we 99, got to, yeah. I, I got to see it here at a you know, long departed Valhalla Cinema here in Melbourne. And I mean, I'd seen it at ton of times on television. I have no recollection. I, I'll be honest. I can't recall whether I'd previously seen the Hey Bulldog sequence on television or not, but it was just magnificent to see this coming out of a cinema screen. And really, to be honest with you, I think I've seen, except for Let It Be, I've seen every Beatle film on the big screen you know, at, a, at a, a, some sort of re-release at, at some stage. Yeah. And it was just magnificent to see uh, those beautiful colors and this great film, which I don't know, maybe I'm being biased or something like that here but it seems to me like the film could get a release today and you know it doesn't matter if it's about the Beatles or, or music club but it, it could still look like a contemporary movie well it's funny you say that because the last time I was with Al was 2012 when the blu-ray came out and the movie again got a cinematic release and in New York, it played at the Ziegfeld Theater, which the Ziegfeld Theater in New York was one of the biggest theaters, you know, for a hundred years. All the big stars from the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, all had, you know, major premieres there. And it was a 1,200-seat theater. And they were playing it again. We were going to host the Fab Four Free For All, were going to host the screening. And I said, listen, it would be really great if we could, you know, have Al be recognized. Now he lived in Connecticut, which is not far from New York. It's about an hour and a half, his house. Mm -hmm. So he and his family, and I'm very happy for this, and I'm not bragging. I'm just, you know, especially in light of what happened in the last couple of weeks, I'm glad it happened. But I brought Al to uh, the theater and, or his family brought him to the theater, but we met up and, and uh, we got to introduce him to the audience. And it was a packed 1200 house, you know, 1200 strong. Uh, and this is just four years ago. And uh, they all gave him the adulation that he so richly deserved. That's magnificent. Uh, and we saw it again, even though it had played in 99 in the theaters, the Blu-ray was just spectacular. So yes, I, I think if they brought this movie out every five years for a cinema, a limited cinematic release, I think it would fit right in with anything we, we have today. I'd be uh, interested to know how much a film like this you know, influenced you know, future generations, not just of animators, but of filmmakers in general. You know what? I, I think there are, you know, just like Magical Mystery Tour, which I abhor, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, okay, then I'm not a, as much in the minority as I, I thought. It's great for its little, you know, film clips of the Beatles doing, you know, I Am the Walrus and stuff, but it, as an hour-long movie, you know, yes, it may be, as Paul McCartney said, a, a great little art film, but I, I'm not impressed. But anyway, you know, as as many people, you know, like Spielberg, say, or Paul McCartney claims Spielberg was influenced by uh, Magical Mystery Tour, I, I do think a lot of animators were influenced or filmmakers were influenced by Yellow Submarine. It's, it's such a different look. Now, you know, everybody claims the whole, what's his name, um, Peter Max. Everybody says, oh, Peter Max had to do with it. He really didn't, but uh, it was in the style of. But I'll tell you right now, I, I do think so many people, if they weren't influenced, then, you know, they were uh, introduced to the Beatles music by that. I mean, even Sean Lennon, you know, there's that great bootleg where Sean is singing with a little help from my friends because he just saw the movie and he asked his father, you know, why were you on TV? Were you a Beatle? <laughs> and uh, and John reluctantly said yes, and and on I think it's on the anthology box, John Lennon anthology, where they have the little segment of Sean singing, 
and John sings with him and, and tells him the right lyrics and stuff. It's very cute, but, you know, a lot of people were, were really turned on to the Beatles because of Yellow Submarine, the movie. All right, look, Mitch, I'm just so gratified that you're able to spend the time and talk about the cartoons and Yellow Submarine to me and for our listening audience. Just want to give you the opportunity, please tell us, uh, people have been listening to this and want to know how they can pick up a copy of uh, Beatle Tunes. How can they do so? Well, Beatle Tunes is currently out of print, but uh, you can find it. Evidently, a lot of people are selling it on eBay, so <laughs> uh, on, on some of the auction sites. A lot of the booksellers also have remaining copies of it, so you may want to find it there. Uh, yeah, I think your listeners, uh, you know, I, I don't know how far you reach, but and please forgive me, but especially the Australia listeners, you know, a lot of the Australian team gave me great insight. I, I reached most of them. Mm. And so there was a lot, you know, I say it's Australia-centric, even though they only did maybe nine shows or so. It was very, very interesting to me, the parts that uh, people told me uh, in Australia. You know, there was the Jim Crow laws that affected the Beatle cartoons. You would never think those two would go together. but uh, and, and just real fun stuff, too, in Australia that we're, we're being told. So if you, can, if you can hunt down the book, I think you'll enjoy it for a lot of reasons, but... Uh, especially there's a part with the whole Beatle cartoon screening, which we you know we didn't really get into, but uh, I think uh, which is good because to let people read about it, I think that's fun too. Where John Lennon actually hides under a table, but I'll I'll let the the book speak for itself there. Yes, yes, that's uh, a and, fun. And story. now I've actually found pictures of that because so, there's actual uh, pictures of him going under the table and laying under the table. I didn't have them at the time of the printing of the book, but maybe if I reprint it, uh, that'll definitely be in there. I was going but to ask. The, um, do, do you have plans to do a reprint? Well, you know, I, I'm, I have to deal with Apple on that, and, and I'm working on that, uh, yep. because obviously they own the likenesses and the rights. Put it this way, I'm actively seeking the avenues to do so. If so that so when, you, when you put out the book the first time, was that while King Features still owned the rights? No, actually. It, when I did the research, King Features owned the rights, and then the rights reverted over to Apple, and it became a little more difficult. But I did go to Apple. Uh, I went to London in 96. We talked about it. I was sending them weekly updates and FedExes of images I was using, so they were well aware of what I was doing. And, and they encouraged doing it. You know, they, they had no problem with a book about the Beatle cartoons. They just didn't want the cartoons out. Right. But, uh, you know, it, but I, I look forward to the day when maybe they're released and Apple calls me or hopefully calls me maybe to do a, uh, a little DVD extra on the making of the cartoons because I've got cells, I've got drawings, I've got, I've, I've got a ton of memorabilia from the animators and all the series participants who pretty much, you know, give me the stuff because they think I'm the keeper of the flame. Unfortunately, a lot of them have died off, uh, many of them. And, uh, and a lot of the same people did Yellow Submarine. And, uh, you know, with Al passing on Thanksgiving evening here on November 24th, it's sad that a lot of the creative team for both the cartoons and the, and the Yellow Submarine film are now gone. Mm. So hopefully, you know, the Yellow Submarine has been licensed and released so many times. Hopefully the cartoons can get that as well. Uh, a release to at least leave a legacy for those people who put such hard work into it. And I'm, I'm hoping for that in the future. Fantastic. And finally, uh, just so uh, folks can know, how can they find you in the uh, podcasting world with Fab Four Free For All? In the podcasting world, myself and my two co-hosts, Tony Chiguardo and Rob Leonard, who we've been friends for over 35 years, <laughs> or thir about 35 years, and we're all three Beatle geeks. You can find us on the internet at Fab, the number four, free the number four all dot com we are on itunes archive.org and our website so uh, you know if you want to hear three guys pontificating about the beatles for better or for worse <laughs> uh you can listen there you know we ha we like to have a lot of fun it's a different topic each week we don't take ourselves too seriously but we take the topic very seriously so we may disagree a lot. We may talk over each other a lot. We like to have a lot of fun. We, you know, there are too many people talking about things, especially Beatles, that are so serious. And I fall asleep when I listen to that. So we try very hard not to be the ones to be the sleeping pill for the fans. <laughs> we, we, try, we try to be the, you know, the people who like to have a lot of fun and really add a little insight as first and second generation fans that we are and hopefully we do that we're heard in over 43 countries last we looked or you know saw and um, even in Guam I don't know if anybody even speaks English in Guam but uh, they evidently like us or are listening to us so it's a lot of fun and um, and, and we you know, we talk about everything from reviews and analysis of the 
of the uh, albums or the movies, a lot of theme shows where we'll talk about, you know, the meaning of one song or the release of a double A side like We Can Work It Out and Day Tripper. So, you know, there are fun things we do and, and hopefully you'll, your listeners will find it as fun uh, if they choose to listen. I absolutely urge the listeners out there to do it because it might seem like dedicating a whole podcast to one band might seem very narrow. Let me assure you, this program, the way how Tony and Rob and my very special guest Mitch do it, this could go on forever. And yes, your humor is really a strong part of the show. Your friendship is a strong part of the show. And I've always sort of thought, wow, you know, what what are you guys going to cover next? Not like, oh gosh, you must surely be near the end because... You've really managed to come up with topics that I never would have thought of, you know, outside of the album analyses. But, you know, you talk, oh, let's talk about, you know, Beatles' uh, approach to love songs. Or, you know, you had your wonderful... Well, even George Harrison, you know, we called that episode uh, George Harrison in the shadow of John and Paul. And we did it for a reason, because he wrote Cry for a Shadow. Uh, but, you know, we do themes like that because there's a lot to do. I don't think we can ever run out. I really don't. Right. You know, we do the Beatles-Nielsen connection we just did, Beatles-Stones right. connection. And, and if we're bored or if we think the audience is bored with us and we just want to do a silly show for the summer, you know, we did one about uh, Brown Chicken, Brown Cow, which is the Beatles' like sex songs. You know, we didn't obviously <laughs> get really racy, but, you know, because in America, if you do Brown Chicken, Brown Cow, that's like a porn movie. Uh, music. So, we, but even driving songs, and I mean, you know, songs that you can just take your car out and drive to. You know, our favorite driving songs, and maybe the favorite John or worst John top five solo vocals. So there are so many things we still have to cover. We just did a show on eight days a week, the movie, and you know, we didn't like it. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're right. But, <laughs> well, again, we, that doesn't mean we're you know we are not the be all end all of, of Beatle opinions. We're just three guys, our opinion, and we're actually going into the studio tomorrow to sort of take ourselves to task about eight days a week. So that'll be a future episode. You know, talk about the extras on the DVD, but also you know were we maybe not as right as we thought we were because of popular opinion of the movie. So that'll be interesting as well. So sure. we, we, again, we don't take ourselves too seriously and uh, we hope you enjoy it. No, I'm absolutely looking forward to that. I also caught the uh, something about the Beatles analysis of the film and they were of a similar mindset to you. I, I was actually, I got to confess, I was a little bit surprised when, because like a, a few weeks before when you'd had the interview with uh, one of the producers, I think. Nigel Sinclair. That, Nigel Sinclair, that's right. And guys were very, very enthusiastic about the project but of course as you pointed out in your show and in something about the Beatles podcast things didn't quite go as planned you know with uh, you know the, there was the the online archive unfound footage film archive yeah. but that's I'm, I'm not going to spoil that listeners out there please dig up both Fab Four Free For All's discussion and their interview with Nigel as well as uh, the something about the Beatles podcast and there's a lot to this for the record and let me just say that Richard and Robert by the way, who do something about the Beatles, are friends of ours. We actually did a joint podcast, right. and and they are really super people as well. So, uh, you know, there's it, as long as people are talking about the Beatles, it's all good. There's so yeah. many other podcasts out there as well. And again, as long as you're, they're talking about the Beatles, I hate to sound very Beatle geeky here, but you know, you know that can't be bad. So, uh, <laughs> and that's another thing I should warn you about, folks. The program is full of Beatle puns, but you know, I but, can't help it. I I I'm sorry. You know, my wife said that when she met me. She loved my humor, uh, and, and she said, at least I, I make her laugh. Well, the other night, she actually confessed that she's sick and tired of my humor. <laughs> 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 so I don't know where to go with that one, but, but there is a lot of puns in, in the show. So I, I, I apologize up front right now, but I, I think you'll all have a good time. Now, look, really looking forward to uh, your, your self-reflection on uh, eight yeah. days a week. Look, once again, thank you so much, Mitch, for being part of C here. I'll put a link up on uh, the show notes to um to the fab for free for all and uh, anything else that's uh, relevant so uh, once it's again really thank you very much pleasure. for being part of it it's really been my pleasure morris I, I enjoyed it immensely it's nice to talk to other people who enjoy the beatles and and also music in general because we're all pop culture people as well mm, mm. Uh, and it's also nice to talk to someone you know in a, a different country than me you know i, I get kind of bored with all the people here so <laughs> it's actually nice to talk to, to someone from australia especially since i have a, a bunch of friends down there now for, uh, because of the beatles so uh it's nice i really appreciate it uh, being on the show terrific thanks mitch <laughs>
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.